This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Byungsu Veterinary Clinic. Byungsu Veterinary Clinic. Don't worry, we've gotten rid of the murderous psychopath, and your kittens are safe once again. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, 1991's Silence of the Lambs and 2017's Memoir of a Murderer. But before we get into the movies, how do we start the show, Kelsey? Slash cards. Slash cards. You want to give me your first question? 1986's Manhunter. Yeah. Was the first film to feature what brilliantly deranged doctor? Uh, Hannibal Lecter? Mm-hmm. Spelled L-E-C-K-T-O-R? It spells it correctly on the card. How does it spell it? L-E-C-T-E-R. Yeah, that's the correct way, yeah. That That's so timely. Yes. Too bad it wasn't last episode. I know. All right. Horror can show up in unexpected places. Like when the children visit Satan in this 1985 claymation film. I know you know the answer to this. No, I know the answer. I can see you concentrating to try to get it. The Adventures of Mark Twain. Boom! But I have a problem. What's that? I think you've asked me that question on the show. You think? I think so. Ah, well, our cards get mixed up, people. (laughs) Okay. We might have to find a replacement for Slash Cards pretty soon. There's a billion in here we haven't asked. Right, but there's... It's going to be impossible to find them. It's going to be a huge undertaking. Well, no, it's just that we just need to start taking questions off the same cards that we've been doing. We just only pick one. Right, but, I mean, we pick the best questions off the cards because there are other questions that suck. I pick the questions that I can somehow relate to what we're doing that week or that we've done in the past. Name the producer who was responsible for such atmospheric horror films as Cat People, The Leopard Man, and The Seventh Victim. Do you know who Val Luton is? Because I don't. Like, these are questions that are on here that they're not going to be good. The quality is going to go down. So we just need to keep in our minds what other games can we play or other things can we do. Or our listeners could always send us trivia questions that they want us to ask. That's a good point. I don't know how they'd get them to us without us seeing the answers in the process, but... They could not give us the answers. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Satan's pretty cool. Also, before we get into the movies, I'd just like to take a minute and uh, mention the passing of Harry Anderson, who played the adult version of Richie Tozier in the made-for-TV miniseries of Stephen King's It. He just passed away either last night or this morning as of this recording, and that really sucks. I figure we should recognize that on this show, uh, considering how we reviewed a movie that he was in. Yeah. I really like Harry Anderson. So did I. And I'm, I'm really, really bummed. He was in a lot of good stuff. I don't know about a lot of good stuff. He was in some good stuff. He was in Night Court, 
he was in Dave's world. He was in it. He was in it. He was in <laughs> Mother Goose's Rock and Rhyme. <laughs> he was a magician. And growing up, I loved that about him. All right. I don't know about the rest of you, but I am getting really sick of this place. Now, I won't listen to anything anybody has to say, but can we do it someplace else? Please. I loved magic growing up. I was that kid. <laughs> We just watched a magic episode from Supernatural. Supernatural check-in. Carry on my yep. We're back to watching Supernatural again, and we just watched Chris Angel is a douchebag. <laughs> what a douchebag. I love that title. Mm-hmm. And they use the term douchebag a lot in it. That was a pretty good standalone episode, I'd say. Okay. We stopped for a while because... It does things that I don't like. <laughs> it does things to my character, Dean, that I don't like. Her Dean. Mm-hmm. It does things to her Dean mm-hmm. that she disapproves of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had, to, we had to take a little bit of a break. But we're back on board, and we're going to charge forth. And that's been our Supernatural check-in. There'll be peace when you are done. Yay. All right, moving on to Silence of the Lambs from 1991, based on the novel Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. Again, just like Red Dragon last week, screenplay by Ted Talley and directed by Jonathan Demme, starring such heavyweights as Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, and some not-so-heavyweights, but still pretty cool. Satan's pretty cool. Like Scott Glenn, for instance. Kelsey, what is the premise of Silence of the Lambs? So Silence of the Lambs is about a female, a a trainee, I guess. Yeah. A fed fed trainee. FBI. FBI agent trainee. I don't know. Yeah, she's not officially an agent yet. (laughs) I don't know what to call her. (laughs) Yeah, she's, she's a trainee. She's an FBI trainee. Okay. So she has been asked to interview Dr. Lecter. And it turns into him giving her helpful hints on how to catch the current serial killer known as Buffalo Bill. This film, obviously famous for being, to date, the only horror film to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. Not the only one nominated. Not the only one nominated. Just recently, Get Out was nominated. But the only one who's won an Academy Award for Best Picture, also famously Anthony Hopkins, won the Academy Award for Best Actor, even though he's only in like 20 minutes of the movie. Um, He should have been up for Supporting Actor. He really should have been. I don't like the idea that he got Best Actor. But there's a lot of gravitas behind that role and behind Anthony Hopkins. And it's kind of like they marketed it all around him. So you can see why it's really up to the production company what they want to push it. What Did categories Judy Foster they want to push win? it in? Let's see. She won. It got Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Movie, Best Director. And Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm-hmm. It brought home, like, the more than Triple Crown. <laughs> best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. Adapted. That's that's a pretty good run at the Academy Awards that year. I wonder what it was up against. Anthony Hopkins was up against Warren Beatty and Bugsy, Robert De Niro and Cape Fear, Nick Nolte and Prince of Tides, and Robin Williams in The Fisher King. 
actress Jodie Foster, obviously, won. Gina Davis and Thelma and Louise, Laura Dern and Rambling Rose, Bette Midler and For the Boys, and Susan Sarandon, also nominated for Thelma and Louise. Jonathan Demme won for Best Director against John Singleton for Boys in the Hood. Wow. Barry Levinson for Bugsy, Oliver Stone for JFK, and Ridley Scott for Thelma and Louise. Best Adapted Screenplay, Ted Talley won for that, nominated against Europa Europa, Fried Green Tomatoes, JFK, and Prince of Tides. All right. Kelsey, should people watch this movie if they haven't already? Yes. Yeah. Duh. It's Silence of the Lambs. If you haven't already and you're listening to a horror movie podcast... I've done this before, but what are you doing? <laughs> now is your chance. Yes. See it, it before we talk about it. Absolutely see it before we talk about it. It's a fantastic film, and everyone should see it. That's even remotely interested in thrillers or horror movies, what have you. Do that now, and when we get back, we will talk about 1991's Silence of the Lambs. The FBI Academy. You spook easily... A criminal asylum. Hello, sir. A young student of the criminal mind. I'm here to learn from you. And the madman who will be her greatest teacher. Go, no! The Silence of the Lambs. I'll have you catch me, Terry. Rated R. Kelsey. Yeah. What happens in Silence of the Lambs? So we open on Clary Starling, played by Jodie Foster. And she is on a course uh, at the FBI training center, Quantico. And she gets called into Jack Crawford's office. Jack Crawford? We know a few of him. (laughs) Yes. He's been played by Lawrence Fishburne. He's been played by Harvey Keitel. Who else was the other one? Dennis Farina. And this one was played by Scott Glenn. So... She gets called in to his office, and he kind of lies to her and just kind of says, hey, I just want you to go in and talk to Hannibal Lecter, the most famous right. uh, serial killer. We're basically doing pro- like early profile work. I mean, not like crazy early, but, but we recognize that insights into serial killers can help us catch other serial killers. And this is one guy who's notoriously refused to answer our questions. I thought maybe you, pretty girl... He might be willing to answer some questions from you. And, and that, it'd be an interesting assignment for you. And that is something that Chris just said she's a pretty girl, which is why she gets sent in there. That is something that she will have to deal with throughout the entire movie. Oh, yeah. It comes up quite a bit. And I got to say, Clarice, Jodie Foster plays a really strong character, but Clarice Starling, really smart about it. It it does get to her sometimes, but she's a pretty strong woman, and she's not afraid to, like speak out when she feels like she's being mistreated or mischaracterized because she's a woman. Right. I thought that's pretty cool. Yeah. Sometimes she uses it to her advantage. hmm And other times, like Chris said, she'll get upset about it. And other times she just has to get through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just stick it out. And She's really clever sometimes, though. Yeah. And I think Thomas Harris, for being a man, he does an excellent job of... Uh, getting into the psyche of a woman and understanding what it what it must be like to be a woman in that kind of profession. Yeah. Where 
you're already dealing with people who don't want to give you respect because you're a woman, and then you put on top of that that you are a federal agent, meaning that they have to give you respect, making them resent you even more. Yeah. Now, Crawford, again, played by Scott Glenn, who, if you don't know who Scott Glenn is, right now, he's probably most famous for playing Stick in the Daredevil and Defenders TV shows. Uh, the blind guy who trained Daredevil. Kelsey said that he lies to her. It's not just a lie of omission. We find out later that he specifically thinks that Clarice can get him to provide information on Buffalo Bill. She doesn't know that going in. He doesn't just admit that. She asks him, do you, do you think he can provide some insight on Buffalo Bill? And he says that there's no connection between uh, Lecter and Bill. And he says, keep your eye on, like, keep your eye on the prize. Like, stay focused yeah. here. If he refuses to answer any questions, just then just tell me how he's doing. Is there art up on his cell walls? Is he writing? Is he drawing? Like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Just give me a report back. Yes. And, and he knows that she wants to join his crew of these you know, serial killer profilers. And he's like, well, this is a great opportunity. It's almost like a test. Let's see how you do. Yeah. And he, he's like, yeah, I remember you in my class. I gave you an A. She goes, an A minus. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, I love that. I remember you from my seminar at UVA. You grilled me pretty hard, as I recall, in the Bureau of Civil Rights record in the Hoover years. I gave you an A. A minus, sir. So she goes, and she first meets Dr. Chilton. Dr. Chilton. Now, this is the same Dr. Chilton from Red Dragon, and he is even more of a sleazeball in this one than he was in Red Dragon. Because I think in Red Dragon, we're already supposed to know him from Silence of the Lambs, so that does a lot of the work for us. Well, also, he's dealing with a man in Red Dragon. He's dealing with a pretty young woman in this movie. Yeah, and he... Lays it on real thick. And when she rejects him, both for a date and to join him and introduce her to Lecter, um, and she, like, rejects him, he gets really snippy with her. Yeah, he's And, and he's like, well, I, I would think you could have told me in the office and saved me the long walk. And she's like, well, then I wouldn't have had the pleasure of your company. And it's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if Lecter feels that you're his enemy, then... Um well, maybe we'll have more luck if I go in by myself. What do you think? You might have suggested this in my office and saved me the time. Yes, sir. Then I, I would have missed the pleasure of your company, sir. It's like, what, is he going to get mad about that? Yeah, and, and Chilton even says, um, and boy, are you ever his taste. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Lecter's even seen a woman in eight years. Yeah, so it's clear how Chilton sees her. But it's also disheartening because she might be thinking that's how Crawford sees her. Yeah. And I mean, he kind of does. He is using her He's as a tool. He's absolutely using her. Yeah. I think, I think that Crawford is surprised that she does as well as she does. Even though he really liked her in his class, I think he's pleasantly surprised with, with what a great job she does. Yeah. So, she walks down the hallway. Well... Before she goes in, he explains to her, like Chris said, he hasn't seen a woman in eight years. The last woman he saw was a nurse. Dr. Lecter, even though he was tied down, attacked her face. Yeah. And he, like, basically ate up her face. Right. 
Um, and the whole thing is, oh, his heartbeat never got over 85. Yeah. I'm going to show you why we insist on such precautions. On the afternoon of July 8, 1981, he complained of chest pains and was taken to the dispensary. His mouthpiece and restraints were removed for an EKG. When the nurse leaned over him, he did this to her. The doctors managed to reset her jaw, more or less, save one of her eyes. His pulse never got above 85 even when he ate her tongue. Just showing you he is a psychopath or Just sociopath. cold-blooded killer. But she has to walk by, like, the worst of the worst, buried down in this basement level at this hospital. Yeah, she has to walk by these guys, and they all kind of say crazy shit to her as she goes. Mo- uh, multiple migs. He's the crazy one, and he says something awful to her on the way, and Lecter's going to ask her about that. Mm-hmm. When she first gets there, it's pretty great. He's standing, and he's waiting for her, and he's just got this really creepy kind of blank look on his face. Anthony Hopkins does an outstanding job. Yes. Like Kelsey said, he is standing when she arrives. Like, he is prepared for her to come. I mean, no surprise, He can hear everyone freaking out when she's walking by. But as we saw at the ending of Red Dragon, he's told ahead of time that she's coming Mm -hmm. um, and he's ready for her. Now, this scene is fucking iconic. Mm -hmm. If you'd really like a good breakdown of the scene. And I thought of this after we had a conversation about Red Dragon. But Tony Zhao has a episode of Every Frame of Painting on YouTube, which is a show he's not doing anymore, which is a real bummer. But that's his business where he asks who won. And we talked about in Red Dragon how even though Lecter gives Graham what he wants, he still manages to, like, win the engagement. And that's what Tony Zhao is asking here, is who wins the scene between Clarice and Lecter? And it's obviously Lecter, and they film it in such a way to give you that impression. And it's a really good breakdown of the scene. If you haven't seen it already, it's like less than three minutes long. It's a very short video, but it gives you a really great breakdown of of the scene. What makes the dynamic interesting is that Hannibal Lecter wins the scene and then gives up his win for his own reasons. Clarice gets what she wanted, but it feels like a humiliation. Uh, so she's told explicitly, like, don't get close to the glass. Don't let him touch you. If you need to hand him anything, hand it through the food slot. Don't let him get in your head, blah, blah, blah. So when the first thing he says to her is, can I see your credentials? So she takes it out. And he's like, closer. 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 <laughs> Until she's practically right in front of the glass. And he gets really upset. He's like, Jack Crawford sent a trainee to see right. me. Right. <laughs> that expires in two weeks. <laughs> You're a trainee. Yeah, that upsets him. Uh Uh-huh. Well, he figures he warrants Jack Crawford's best. (laughs) Now he's not even trying, and he kind of clams up at this point, really. And and when she when she starts to talk, oh, I think I thought you'd want to take this test, and he's like, oh, come on, you were doing great job. Like he's almost like fostering her along in this interaction, almost like he needs a new Will Graham. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was, like, trying her out and helping her along. And then she does that. And she's like, ah, oh, come it on. It won't do, is what yeah. he says. <laughs> it won't do. And he makes fun of her accent. Yes. She has a West Virginia accent. Um, and he explains that she looks like a rube because she has a nice 
bag and cheap shoes, or is it nice shoes? No, and it's cheap a nice bag. bag and cheap shoes. He mentions the cheap shoes later too. Makes um, it look like a rube. Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. And it's interesting because she says the same thing that Will Graham says: either you will or you won't help me. Yeah, I don't think I can convince you. You either will or you won't. Um, and he asks her, like, is this about Buffalo Bill? And she's just like, no, because as far as she knows, it's not. And he asks her some things like, you know, why do you think he skins them? He's having a repertoire with her and he's building up this relationship. Um, and she is trying not to fall prey to him, but she's also trying to be polite and keep him talking. Right. Which, so. until he obviously has the upper hand in the interaction, he does too. Him standing when she comes in is a very intimidating picture. And he's, like, staring at the camera as he comes into frame. And it's really neat, and it's super intimidating. But if you pay attention to his stance, he's back straight. His hands are just at his side. He's intimidating because it's, like, still, and he looks powerful. He looks creepy. But what he's doing is he's being polite. He is standing when he meets this woman, you know, and he is presenting himself to her, not in a way that says, look at me, aren't I great? But in a, a lady's coming, she's about to sit down, I'm going to stand up. And then he, when he obviously has the upper hand, he, he gets combative with her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he's asking her questions about Buffalo Bill, and he's like, why do you think he skins them? And she goes, we think that it's some sort of trophy. Um, he's keeping them. And he and he goes, well, I didn't. <laughs> she goes, no, you ate yours. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Why do you think he removes their skins, Agent Starling? Throw me with your acumen. It excites him. Most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims. I didn't. No. No, you ate yours. You send that through now. And so he asks her, like, where did the name Buffalo Bill come from? And she explains that it was a joke because he, somebody said that he skins his humps. Yeah. So, as Chris said, he does become combative with her when she starts to kind of stick up for herself. Right. I mean, he gets a little impatient. So he does this whole thing where he basically goes into who she was growing up how she's white trash, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, you see a lot, doctor, but are you strong enough to look inward at yourself? This is when he bottles up and he's basically just like, all right, bye, see you later. So she's just like, okay. And she, as she's walking out, everybody else in the cell has just bars, I guess. Yeah. And so... That's why they, they replaced Hannibal's bars when he ate that nurse's face <laughs> with glass. But everyone else does have bars. So the guy next to her, who had been saying, like, rude, dirty things to her on her way in, as she's walking by, he throws his ejaculate at her face. Yeah, he's mumbling something about the blood, how he's bleeding, and then he's like, look, and then he, he just tosses it, and it hits her right in the face, gets in her hair, and she's, like, kind of freaking out about it, and... Then suddenly, Hannibal Lecter's like, Clarice, or whatever it is that he says. Yeah, he yells at her to come back. Yeah, he starts, like, he gets kind of frenzied about it. And when she comes back, he's like, and he's talking really, really fast and kind of quietly. Well, he's, he's taking advantage of the fact that her heart is, like, pumping and her adrenaline is flowing. He's not trying to calm her down. 
He's trying to get her to do what he wants. And he explains, I would never have done that to you. I don't I don't believe in rudeness. I think it's disgusting yeah. what Migs has done to her. So he's like, so because of that, I'll give you a hint. And he says, I'm going to help you what you with what you want most. And she goes, what is that? And he goes, um, promotion, of course, in her field. Because mm-hmm. she wants to pick herself up from being poor white trash. And the hint that he gives her is look inside yourself. Look up Miss Moffat. An old, his patient old patients. Agent Sterling, come back! Agent Sterling! Agent Sterling! I would not have had that happen to you. This courtesy is unspeakably ugly to me. Then do this test for me. No, but I will make you happy. I'll give you a chance for what you love most. And what is that, Doc? Advancement, of course. Listen carefully. Look deep within yourself, Terry Starling. Go seek out Miss Moffat, an old patient of mine. M-O-F-E-T. Go Doctor. now. I don't think Mix could manage again quite so soon, even though he is crazy. Go now! So then she has to write up her report. She gives it to Jack Crawford and, I don't know, do you know what happens there when yeah. they talk about it? I, I think this is just when he reveals that, yes, ultimately, he was sending her in there to see if he wanted to talk about Buffalo Bill, but he couldn't send her in there with an agenda because he would sniff it out right away. But she goes from here and looks up Miss Moffat. And, your self-storage. Yeah. Look inside yourself. Mm-hmm. Your self-storage. And it's basically a little puzzle. And there is a storage facility made out to a Moffat, and she needs to get in. And this is probably, I remember the first time I saw this movie, this is the most tense I got the entire movie, was it this scene. And it's because I have a problem with tight, enclosed spaces and not having freedom of movement. It's one of my two big phobias. And... When she has to crawl under that door, she cuts herself. Whatever. That's not my problem. But it's like trying to squeeze under there. She so tells- she's at the storage center, and it's been so many years since it's been opened that it won't open normally. So she uses her jack, her car jack. Yeah. And it won't, it still won't go up very far. Right, it still gets stuck, and so she has to she has to crawl under. And she tells the owner of the storage space that the office knows I'm here. <laughs> so fucking smart. Mm-hmm. Like she says it like, "Hey, you know the office knows I'm here. So if if I have any trouble, you just give them a call." Mm-hmm. But really, what she's saying is, "Don't try fucking anything. The office knows that I'm here." Right. With you, she even says. Yeah. Um. Oh, I would let my driver help you, but he detests manual labor. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, she goes into the storage shed and what she finds is a head in a jar, which is unusual because Lecter didn't keep any trophies. So what is this head in a jar? So she goes back to talk to Lecter about the head that she found. But this time he isn't, you can't see him and he's sitting in the dark because after Miggs uh, threw that stuff at her face, All night long after that, he was whispering things into his cell. Yeah. And Miggs ended up killing dying. He said that he swallowed swallowed his own own tongue. tongue. Yeah. uh So he took away all his drawings. He had drawings up on the wall of like Florence and stuff. And he took away his light. 
and the only thing that you can see is a TV with a televangelist on it. Right, but it's on mute. But when she leaves, he's going to turn it up to maximum volume mm-hmm. because Chilton likes his petty tortures. Mm-hmm. And when she's just sitting there trying to get Lecter to talk to him before she can even see him, he hands her a towel. Yeah. She's all wet. Because she's wet because it, it was raining. Yeah. And he tells her, you know, I didn't kill that guy. Um, Hence, he doesn't keep trophies. This is not one of his kills. Mm-hmm. And he starts explaining about Buffalo Bill. And he's like, you know, he had an exotic romance with this patient of mine. And that he is trying to transform himself. But then Lecter is like, but I'm not going to give you any more information unless we you start giving me information. Yeah. Quid pro quo, Clarice. Yes. So she has to give him information in, so that he'll give him give her information. And he's like, you know, why do you think Crawford sent you? Do you think it's because he's sexually attracted to you? Do you think that he's ever thought of you while he masturbated, essentially? And she's just like, that doesn't interest me, Dr. Lecter. That's what Miggs would have said. And, and Hannibal goes, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cute. And throughout this process, we're, we're getting glimpses into Buffalo Bill. He abducts a woman by getting a cast on his hand and having trouble struggling getting furniture into the back of his van. And he uses that to abduct this woman who ends up being the daughter of a United States senator. This is where we see a few different influences on Buffalo Bill. So Ed Gein skinned. His victims, he had lamps and stuff like that, lampshades and, and stuff like that. Some other stuff. Ted Bundy used, he was a charming man who preyed on women using pity, and he would use a fake cast um, to seem weak and convince them to get into his van, which is what Buffalo Bill does here. And Gary Heidnick, who apparently kept women in his, in a pit in his basement which is what Buffalo Bill does here. So, yeah. So this girl is coming home and this guy is trying to get a couch into the back of his van and she stupidly goes over to help him. He kind of makes himself sound kind of mentally disabled. Right. uh, And he's also got the cast and... It's small concessions is what it is. (sighs) Is It's like... I. Seriously, women, men too, like, keep an eye out on this. People who are going to prey on you, and they're very skillful in this, they just ask for small concessions until they get you into a situation. Like, if he had just asked her, hey, can you get into my van trapped behind this chair? She would have been like, uh, no thanks, maybe I'll call somebody to help you out, or something like that, right? Never would have done it. But it's a high first. Are you okay? Well, he do doesn't even help? he doesn't even talk to her first. She no, has no, to I know. go and talk I'm to saying, him. But he convinces her to do so by being a little bit more vocal than someone. So first she has to recognize him, right? Yeah. And then she has to come over and say, hey, are you okay? And then she feels rude if she doesn't ask if he wants any help. And if you did any one of these later steps first, it never would have worked. It's just small concession after small concession, and those add up to you're in a situation where now you're trapped. So just, like, keep an eye on that, people. Um, but, yeah, she gets into the van and because she doesn't want to be rude, and he hits her and locks her in there. Mm-hmm. 
and takes her away. And she ends up being the daughter of a senator. So this is a really big deal. The senator needs Buffalo Bill to be caught. So Clarice offers him a deal. He wants to be transferred away from Chilton, who is so awful to him. And she says, if we catch him based on your advice and the daughter is not dead yet, then you're going to be transferred to this other facility, still maximum security, but you'll get a window looking out on a courtyard or a lake or something like that. And once a year, you get to spend a day or whatever on this island under armed guard. But you get to walk on the beach. And he agrees. But they need this quid pro quo relationship of, I'll tell you something, you tell me something, and we'll go back and forth like this. And this is where Clarice tells the story about how her parents died. Her dad died. They don't talk oh, about Oh, yeah, her mom was already dead. But her dad was a cop. He died um, on duty? Yeah, he was uh, apprehending... Two people who had robbed a store and they shot him. Yeah, and that's really stuck with her. We get a few flashbacks of her as a kid. She's very traumatized by the death of her father and she goes to stay with some extended family or a family friend or something like that on a on a sheep and horse horse ranch. And eventually over the course of the movie, we get the entire story. We're not going to break it apart for you. We'll just go over it right now. Um in the middle of the night one night, she hears screaming. She doesn't know what it is. She goes outside to look, and they're slaughtering lambs. And she freaks out and doesn't know what to do and tries to save them by opening the gate and letting them run out and trying to force them out. And they are all so terrified and dumb, they don't know to, to even escape to save their own lives. Mm-hmm. So she grabs one of them and she runs. And she gets like a mile and a half down the road before she collapses mm-hmm. uh, because the thing is really fucking heavy. And she it's didn't, freezing outside. Yeah, and she was barefoot, I think. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even save that one yeah. lamb. She didn't even save that, one, save that one lamb. So she still has dreams. She reveals her dreams to Lecter, which is something Will Graham was smart enough not to do. And reveals that she still dreams, she can still hear the lambs screaming. And that's where the title comes in. Later on, he asks her if the lambs have stopped screaming yet. That's the silence of the lambs. So Dr. Chilton apparently does something which may or may not be very legal and records the conversation. Mm-hmm. And listens back to it. Because Chilton is a fucking awful opportunist. He really, really wants to write a book about Lecter, but Lecter refuses to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Because he sees through Chilton. He knows Chilton is an idiot Mm -hmm. and an opportunist and an awful abrasive human being. And so he (laughs) won't give Chilton what he wants. And Chilton instead will take advantage of what he has in front of him. So what he does is he, he looks into it and he finds out that the deal is fake. There is no deal. Mm -hmm. And he tells this to Lecter. And Lecter appears to be very upset about this, that he was lied to, that he was fooled. And Chilton really, really lays into him. And he's like laying on his bed as they search his room and everything. And and he's got the pen in his hands. And he, like an idiot, leaves the pen behind. And Lecter manages to get his hands on it. 
But he offers, he says, you know what I called? There was no deal. I managed to get a deal for you. We will transfer you away from me. No time on the beach or anything like that. But, you know, you get a nicer place away from me. The senator will do that for you if you find his daughter. You have to provide the name of Buffalo Bill and where he is and all of that. So at some point in all of this, Clarice and... Crawford go to a funeral for one of the victims and they get to participate in the autopsy. This is also a great moment where she is surrounded by a bunch of dudes and Crawford's like to the, sh- to the sheriff says certain certain sex acts are not to be spoken in front of a lady. Basically, yeah. He he explains later that he said that just to get him alone with the sheriff. Right. Uh, but, but she it, said it matters. It matters. It yeah. made her look like she was weak and can't handle anything. But then she kind of gets her comeuppance later when they're about to do the uh, autopsy and there are just all these cops inside the room and she lets her accent go. Uh-huh. And she kind of becomes like a den mother and she's just like... You know, I'm I'm certain that she'd be happy for all the stuff that you've done for her. But now we need some extra time with her alone. Y'all yeah. need to get out of here. Get, move along. Mm-hmm. Now go on, get. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me, gentlemen, you officers and gentlemen, listen here now. Uh, there's things we need to do for her. I know that y'all brought her this far, and that her folks would thank you if they could for your for your kindness and your sensitivity. And now, please go on. Now, let us take care of her. Go on now. Thank you. Thank you. And eventually they all leave. Um, But when they're having that conversation later about how it matters, what Jack says about her, how she is seen as a woman in a position of authority, to Jack's credit, he does say, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. And you're right. You're right. I'll do better next time. Mm-hmm. Which is the appropriate response when something like that is pointed out to you, gentlemen. Yes, exactly. So as they're inspecting the body, she makes some pretty quick assumptions. You know, she's got the girl's got glitter nail polish and three ear piercings. So she's probably from town, not from the country where they are. Uh, so she probably had to wash down the river for a little while. And they're taking pictures of her teeth. And that's when they see. Yeah, she's looking at, at one of the throat. Polaroids, and she sees there's something in her throat. And so they reach in and they pull out. They don't know what it is at first, but then it's a cocoon of some uh, bug or something like that. I should point out that she turns around to put the stuff under her nose. Nobody else does. They all just do it. She turns around before she does it. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a modesty thing or what, but she does. How I took it from my female perspective for what that's worth, I took it as... It's worth a lot more than mine. (laughs) She... Women don't like to do anything that's going to make them look... Silly? Yes, or unattractive. It's It's just not our natural thing. We don't want that. Especially since she does her best... To always look nice. It doesn't matter what she's well, doing. Well, and composed, I think, probably yes. is a good word for Her that. makeup is never over overtly done, but she does always have makeup on. Her hair is always done nicely. Not over the top, 
but always nice. She makes herself look feminine because she knows that that's a way to keep men's respect, but at the but same powerful. time, she keeps herself composed, yeah. etc. So when she has to do something that will make her not look as attractive and composed, it's really hard for her to do that in front of, especially in front of guys, but also just in general. Right. So she turns around to do it almost like maybe if I turn, they won't ever see it. <laughs> and so she takes it to the bug experts at the FBI, one of whom has a crush on her. Are you hitting on me? Yes. <laughs> in the book, they date. Yeah. In this, they don't. Um, but they do show up to her uh, graduation at the end. Right. Yeah. No, they're obviously friends, uh, including the sports anchor from Frasier. <laughs> He's the guy who really knows about the death's head moth. They break open this cocoon and they see it has a skull on its back. Now, this isn't real. It's not. It's not a real thing. Oh. What that is on their back is the same thing you'll see on posters and stuff like that. It's, oh God, what is his name? Really, really weird artist with the big mustache that comes out really far. He, has, he does the melting clocks. Dolly? Dolly. Salvador Dolly, I think. I think? Oh God, I hope I'm right. He has this photograph where he posed a bunch of nude women in positions to look like they were the shape of a skull. Oh. And that... That image is what's on the the moth. Hmm. I just thought that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And it needs intense care, especially if it hasn't been turned into a moth yet. Um, it needs to come over in eggs and needs to be nurtured and cared for. This thing was loved. So that's a great clue because it needs to be somebody who obviously takes care of these moths. And earlier, uh, Lecter had told her he wants to transform. So the fact that he picked an animal that goes into a cocoon and then transforms. So transforming. Transformation. Transformation. We should probably talk a little bit, just very briefly, about accusations of transphobia. Buffalo Bill, as we see, is revealed to us more and more throughout the movie, um, wants to become a woman. And what he's doing is he's making basically a woman's suit that he can wear out of women's skin. And so he could then be a real woman. They make a point in the movie, though, they kind of don't ever go back to it, is that he's probably not actually trans. Yeah. Because they tend to be more passive. Mm -hmm. Psychologically speaking, if you're building a profile, that that's the case. They tend well, not to be murderers. And and Hannibal Lecter says when he's talking to Clarice, he's not really a transgender person. Right. He he thinks he is. He thinks he is because he needs something to get him out of himself. Right. He hates himself, and he thinks that if he becomes a woman, he'll love himself. It's not about what a transgender person's real experience is, is where they know that they are a woman or a man, the other gender, if you subscribe to the whole binary thing. It's not like that. It's insulting to that. And it should be. He's a murderer. It's not portraying a transgendered person as being a murderer. It is specifically somebody who is not transgendered. Mm -hmm. In the book, it's more about his mother. Right. 
in the book, a little more he, psycho. He is obsessed with this person who he thinks is his mom. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it, actually, in the end, it turns out to not be his mom. But um, he believes that this woman in this video is his mom, and he wants to be his mother. Yeah. Because he perceives her to be beautiful and himself to be ugly. All right. So, um, just wanted to get that out of the way and address it. If you have a different opinion, feel free to write us, comment on it under the under the episode on podcemetery.com or just send us an email at podcemetery@gmail.com. We may read it on the next episode unless you don't want us to. The significance of the moth is change. Caterpillar into chrysalis or pupa and from thence into beauty. Our belly wants to change, too. There's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. Clever girl. You're so close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? I think a good transition from here is that we see a television news report about how the senator's daughter was abducted and the anchor is Oba Babatunde from April Fool's. <laughs> We were watching it. I'm just like, hey! Oh, it's <laughs> we were really, really excited to see him. Yeah, so, so if good. you didn't listen to our show about April Fools, Oba Baba Tunde. Oba Baba Tunde, the only actor of note in April Fools, <laughs> of note in quotes, plays um, a, a, anchor. a TV anchor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we should also talk about, if we're talking about casting, Buffalo Bill is Ted Levine, who is. The captain from Monk. If you ever watched the show Monk, he is the straight man to to Monk's OCD character. I've never seen it. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he's the captain from Monk. Also, at some point during all of this, we get a scene with Buffalo Bill where he is putting on his makeup and... Goodbye Horses, I think is the name of the song. Fuck yeah, Goodbye Horses. Uh, <laughs> it's a really good song. It's great. And I'm really sad that it's kind of marred by this Oh, it, it is iconically connected to this scene. You right. You can't hear so, the song without seeing the scene. Exactly. So people don't listen to it anymore because it creeps them out. He does the whole tuck thing to see what he would look like if he did not have a penis. Yes. Um. Can I tell you something? Yes. When I was a kid, I'd do that. Totally. Cool. Are you... <laughs> I mean, like a little kid, like, you know, you play around with yourself when you're a little kid. It's not sexual at all. It's just like, oh, look what I can do. <laughs> Never had a penis, so I don't know what that's like. Yeah, that's your that's your male perspective right here. It's not incredibly unusual to have done that at some point in your life. Doesn't make you a serial killer, though, I should probably point out. <laughs> like it if you didn't compare yourself to Buffalo Bill like ever again. <laughs> when he wears a wig though, he's not wearing a wig. He's wearing somebody's scalp. scalp. He's wearing a scalp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is fantastic. He's so good. And this kind of ruined his career. It did. It wasn't really until Monk that he got 
any sort of like steady just really notoriety. sad because he's a great actor but he, it's like really oh great. but now whenever anybody sees you that's what they're oh, you're buffalo see. bill you're the guy that played with his nipple ring with his dick tucked between his legs yeah uh-huh uh, but he does such a good job it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again it rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again Yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. So it's interesting because when the senator does a video on television, like repeating the name, they specifically call that out and they say, you know, How that's, genius it is. It's really smart because it makes her seem like a person. Yeah. So when he is doing that famous uh, line of it puts its lotion on the skin. Saying it. Yeah. And she just keeps pleading with him and you can. Now, this part doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay. He is calling her it so that he doesn't think of her as a person, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And when she starts to, like, plead and, like, say, I want to see my mama and all that stuff, he, like, almost starts to cry. And he kind of loses his composure and he screams at her, like, just put the lotion on. Yeah. But then... Put the lotion in the basket! <gasps> oh, I go home, please! Please go home. He places the lotion in the basket... <laughs> I want to see my mommy. Please, no. I want to see my mommy. Okay. I want to see my mommy. What the fucking lotion in the basket? But then after that, he starts mocking her. Yeah, because she's crying. Well, okay, so it's, it's So does almost, he feel for her or doesn't it, no, he? No, it's the reverse of Will Graham. He's getting close to sympathizing for her, seeing her as a human, and he needs to walk himself back from that ledge. Because the women he kidnaps are a means to the to an end. He kills them because he wants their skin. What he does is he keeps them, he starves them. They need to be a particular size. He starves them and makes them put lotion on their skin so their skin stays good and it's loose. So it can be easily removed. Um, and then he can wear it. The fact that he has to kill them is incidental. He says that. You didn't come up with that. That's a line in the movie. Really? Yeah. I'm not thinking about the, any any particular line in the movie. No, Hannibal says that. The fact that they die is incidental. Okay, great. Perfect. That supports my point even more. <laughs> <coughs> it's incidental. When she becomes real to him, the fact that he has to kill her also becomes real. And he can not care about the killing if he can compartmentalize and turn them into a thing and not see them as a human being. And so when she starts to appear to be a human being, he almost starts to crack and cry because he knows he's going to have to kill a human being. It doesn't make him want to not do it, but he knows he's going to have to kill a human being instead of taking a skin from an object. And so in order to walk himself back from that point, like the opposite of Will Graham, he has to like mock her. He has to turn her back into a thing. That's my analysis. That makes sense. So at this point, Hannibal Lecter has flown out to Memphis to meet the senator because uh, he wants to tell her to her face. And No, because I think earlier when you said that, that Chilton said that he could leave, I don't think it was Chilton's idea. It was... Hannibal's idea. He said, I won't say a word until I'm out of here. No, 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 no. That's him saying that he won't tell her until he's been transferred. 
but the Chilton got him the transfer in the first place. That happened already. He said, he's just talking order of operations. I won't do it. I won't tell you and expect you to transfer me. You're going to transfer me and then I will do it. I'll tell her to her face. And so he comes out of the plane in the iconic straight jacket and face mask strapped to a hand truck. Or a dolly. I don't know what part of the world you're from. You call it one of those things. And um, he has a conversation with the senator. And he tells them, well, after antagonizing the senator and asking her if you breastfed her, he asks her, yeah, did you nurse her? That's where you're attached to her. When somebody loses their arm, they feel phantom pains. Where do you feel pain? Um, it's really fucking creepy and he's really trying to fuck with her. So she's like, get him out of my sight, send him back. Like she's really upset. Tell me, Senator, did you nurse Catherine yourself? What? Did you breastfeed her? Now, wait a minute. Yes, I did. Toughened your nipples, didn't it? Oh, son of a bitch. Amputate a man's leg and he can still feel it tickling. Tell me, mom, when your little girl is on the slab... Where will it tickle you? Take this thing back to Baltimore. He tells her, he shouts out the name. And do you remember the name that he shouts? Lewis Friend. Lewis Friend. He should know because Buffalo Bill came to see him. We know that he killed a man. And that's the head in the jar that, that Lecter had. Um, and so... Lecter would know who this man is. When he's sent back to, is it a library or a museum? He's kept in a big, like, ballroom, like at a museum or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head where he's actually sent. Starling visits him to bring him back his artwork, ostensibly. And she reveals that Lewis' friend is an anagram, again, Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. (laughs) It's an anagram of iron sulfide, better known as fool's gold. Basically, he gave them something that seemed valuable, but is actually worthless. So he gives her back the notes, the, um, the file, the case file or whatever. Oh, you forgot your file. And when she grabs it back from him, he touches her finger. That's the first woman he's touched since the nurse. And he ended up having written, because he had a pen from Chilton, mm-hmm. he ended up having written um, something to the effect of, look at this, look at these spots. It seems random, almost desperately so. Mm-hmm. Like it's trying to hide the fact that one of these isn't random. And so she starts talking with her roommate, who is also in the academy with her. Obviously, they live together at the academy. And they start talking about how, yes, the third one found was the actual first kill, but it's the only one he tied down. Come to find out that you, what, what is the term they use? You covet that which you know best or something like that. You covet that which is close to you. Because what you see every day. What you see every day. There you go. That's good. Yeah, that, that's the line. Because uh, Lecter says he covets. That's what this man does. You know, what does he do? Oh, he kills people. Oh, he skins them. No, he covets. The murders are incidental. That's your point. Uh, when he says the murders are incidental. Read Marcus Aurelius. Of each particular thing, ask, what is it in itself? 
What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? He kills women. No, that is incidental. What is the first and principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing? Anger. Um, social acceptance and uh, sexual frustration. No, he covets. The fact that he covets is the thing. And she knows that you covet what you see every day, leading her to believe that he saw this first girl every single day. So it has to be something having to do with that. And she's a seamstress, right? And that's how she knows that he's building a suit out of the skin that he's taking because a similar design was taken off the back of one of the women. That does that diamond off shape. Off of Frederica Bimmel. So yeah. what she ends up doing is she she calls Crawford to tell him what she's discovered. And he's like, don't even worry about it. We're already on our way. And she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to go to the town and I'm going to try to look around and whatever. And she goes to Frederica Bimmel's house and she goes into her bedroom and she sees... The dress. A, uh, a mannequin... And on the mannequin, it has the diamonds on the back. Yeah. And it's supposed to help you with seaming, with seamstressing, with sewing, whatever. (laughs) So she also finds pictures inside Frederica Bimmel's room that show that she was probably in some sort of sexual relationship. Yeah. But when she interviews her friend, her friend's like, no, she wasn't involved with anyone I would have known. And... She's like, is there anything else you can tell me? And she's just like, well, you could talk to Mrs. Lippman because she's who we did all our sewing for. So she goes to Mrs. Lippman's house. And while she's doing that, Jack Crawford and his team are uh, invading Buffalo Bill's home. This is probably one of the earliest, what a twist, like editing tricks that I remember seeing as a child. This part blew my mind when I was a kid. All right? I, it's just, there's There's something that I have been keeping for the lightning round, and I'll just get to it now. Uh-huh. I was introduced to this movie at a very young age, because uh-huh. this is one of my father's favorite movies. So I watched it a lot when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, and I have a very vivid memory of the first time of realizing what was going on, and like that we're supposed to think that they're going into his house but really she is. And I was just like, what? Right. Like, just... Because they get a guy holding what looks to be flowers. Exploded. Right, like long stem roses, like he's gonna deliver them, and he knocks on the door and rings the bell, and when he rings the bell, the alarm goes off in the basement where the pit is. So Buffalo Bill can be in the basement and still know that there's somebody at his front door. He's in his basement at this point because the woman that he has kidnapped has managed to catch his dog. Pull, pull Precious down there, and he loves Precious. <laughs> and and he's, like, really, like, screaming at her. Don't and you hurt my dog! Yeah, so good. She broke her leg on the way down. I know it. She's been licking Hey, don't head. you hurt my dog! Don't you make me hurt your dog! And you don't know what pain is! So he's trying to deal with this when all of a sudden this alarm goes off. Really unfortunate timing. And... As everyone's starting to wonder, like, is he ever going to answer? Is he ever going to answer? You see the man pressing the, or knocking on the door at this point, And then he goes to open the door. And when he opens the door, Clarice is there. What a twist. And then you see the SWAT team come crashing in through the windows. To an empty to house. To an empty house. 
They had found that house because they did some investigation of their own. They cross-referenced because they knew that Hannibal Lecter treated this man. They cross-referenced what records they had with hospital archives in the area. And they found a man who applied to get a sex change and was rejected. And so, like, he did this multiple times, apparently. So that's how they find Jame Gum, or Jamie Gum. And that's what Crawford says to her. He says, we never would have found him if it weren't for you. Right. Clarice. And he's trying to make her feel better because we're going to go capture him right now, and there's no way you'll be here in time. We'll take care of it. We couldn't have gotten here without your help. Don't worry. You're going to get credit for this. And she doesn't feel consoled at all. <laughs> she wanted to be there to catch this guy because she did all the footwork on this case. Mm -hmm. And she gets the guy because they go to an empty house. And so she's talking to this guy that she does not know is Buffalo Bill about the woman who used to live there. And he's like, oh, I think I might have a address here somewhere, a business card or something like of that. Of her son. Of her son, right. Yeah, because she died. While he's doing this, ostensibly looking through the stuff for the address or that uh, the son's business card, she sees a moth flittering around, and she comes to the realization, holy fuck. And she realizes that he's got, like, sewing stuff all over the place. Uh -huh. There's moths, and there's something else, too, I think, that kind of sets her off. But, yeah, she knows. Yeah. And he knows, too. <laughs> and so she tries to play it cool, mm -hmm. and then obviously is not very successful, and she, like, freaks out and pulls out her gun and says, don't move, and he does this little thing where he, like, drops the business cards and turns around, and it's this really great iconic movement. <laughs> it's just really cool. I, just, I love that movement. He runs away, and so she can't get to him. And so she goes looking, and he kills the electricity of the whole place and turns on his night vision goggles, which he uses to track women at night. Mm-hmm. And we get these first-person perspectives. Something I don't really like is we get to see him, and he's lit too well. I kind of don't like that. I don't think we needed to see him. We could just see her through the goggles, and he's just following her around. He reaches out as if to touch her several oh, this, times. This scene, like when I was a kid and saw this, this made me so tense. Yeah. I was mm -hmm. freaking out. She goes downstairs first, though, and finds... The woman notices the woman's still there. And she's like, get me out of here. Get me out of here. He's like, no, I got to take care of you. He's still around here. And she's like, don't you leave me here, you fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Catherine, I'm going to get you out of there. But right now, you listen to me. I've got to leave this room. I'll be right back. No, don't you leave me here, you fucking bitch. No. He reveals himself somehow. How does he do it? He accidentally reveals himself. No, he's got the gun out, and he goes to pull the, the trigger. Oh, yeah. He he, he cocks, cocks back it. the hammer, and she hears that, and we get this slow motion moment of her turning around and unloading into him. Which, is that possible for her to have done that before he could have shot her? If he wasn't prepared for it, sure. I just, I've always thought that. Like, how on earth did she get the drop on him? Well, because he went too slow. He savored. But she had to turn? She's also highly trained. And as far as we know, he's never fired a gun before. <laughs> right? Like, he doesn't shoot any of his victims. And, and we see her throughout the movie training herself on where someone could be, including right behind her mm -hmm. and being prepared for that. Because remember, she gets caught in one of their simulations because she didn't check the corner. Mm-hmm. 
So she's really prepared to pull her gun and turn on somebody who might be in her blind spot, which is exactly where he was. And she just unloads on this guy. Meanwhile, as all this is happening, Lecter manages to escape. Using what he got from the pen, he breaks out of the handcuffs when they try to feed him, and he attacks the two police officers that are there, including <laughs> Charles Napier, which you may remember from fucking Lifeblood. He's the hick, sexist, racist cop <laughs> in Lifeblood. Also the voice of Duke in The Critic. So if you ever watch The Critic cartoon, that's him. Charles Napier was dope. He recently passed away, though. And strings him up and disfigures the other guy and cuts his face all up. So the SWAT team is there. They're trying to find him. There's this whole exchange on the elevator. And they think he's on top of the elevator because they see blood dripping. And when they open the elevator, it's a dead body. With the face all scarred again. And that's when we cut back to the ambulance that one of the cops has taken away in. And we see him pop up and rip off the face. And it's actually Hannibal Lecter. And he attacks the guy in the, uh, in the ambulance. So that's how Hannibal Lecter finally gets out. Back at Quantico. She graduates. And gets a phone call. So she, she graduates. There's everyone there at the ceremony, including Crawford. She's going to join Crawford's team after all. Um, he's really excited to work with her. But you have a phone call. Don't forget about that. He tells her, he's like, I got to get out of here. But don't forget about your phone call. And when she goes to answer the phone call, it's Hannibal Lecter on the phone. Starling. Well, Clarice, have the lamb stopped screaming? Dr. Lecter. And she's freaking out. And he's like, don't bother tracing the call i'll be off by the time you could track it um just wanted to ask have the lamb stopped screaming catching somebody is that your internal metaphor for getting justice for your father um you know did you save someone does that make you feel better do you have those dreams anymore uh and she and he tells her that he's having an old friend for dinner i do wish we could chat longer but i'm having an old friend for dinner Bye. And we see Dr. Chilton walk by. Getting off the plane. And, and the he also, credits roll as he walks down the street. And he also tells her, don't worry about me. The world's far more interesting with you in it. Right. Because when he first escapes, that's when we get the line we talked about in the last episode, which is that she's not worried about him escaping because she knows he's not going to come after her. She can't quite explain it, but... She thinks he would consider that rude. <laughs> and it's true. She's kind of like the new Will Graham. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's bullshit that he says he would eat Will Graham. I agree. It's a bullshit line from a scene that didn't exist previously in <laughs> Red Dragon. And that is 1991 Silence of the Lambs. Kelsey, lightning round. Basically, I just want to say that because I saw this movie at such a young age, I grew up kind of seeing Jodie Foster's character as, like, the ultimate... Woman. Woman. She was smart. She always planned ahead. 
She was fearless. I loved that about her. She just went ahead and did things, even even though she might have been afraid. She kept well, going. Yeah, that's the thing. It's not that she's fearless. It's that she's brave. Yeah. There's several moments where she's obviously uncomfortable or scared or stressed. She cries in one of the scenes. And apparently, uh, female FBI agents... First of all, the movie was made with the cooperation of the FBI. They thought it would be a good recruitment tool. <laughs> um, so that's how they got some insight and and some practices and they got some extras and all that. Um, but specifically, the female agent said she was a very believable character, especially the scene after she meets with Lecter the first time and Miggs throws his cum at her uh, where she breaks down and she's crying outside. And they're like, it can be like that sometimes. It gets very, very stressful. But she's brave yeah and yet she's still feminine you Um, know she doesn't have to be like a man masculine a a ball buster right like that she can still be feminine and she can still have that side to her but she can also be a badass yeah and i just kind of grew up with that as like my uh you know my He-Man or my She-Ra or whatever the fuck you want to compare it to. <laughs> uh, it also helped that my entire life I've been told that I look like Jodie Foster. Uh-huh. Not that I take that as a compliment. You have that nose and that jawline. You both have those those really, um, like, clear eyes. Uh, so I'm not, like, trying to brag or anything. I'm just saying that's the celebrity that I've been told my whole life that I look like. And... I liked it because it's it was in my eyes they were calling me Clary Starling, which was awesome. right. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Anthony Hopkins says to create his voice, he thought of two people and he mixed them up. Do you know who those two people are? I would guess Vincent Price is one of them. No, but close. Who has an iconic, stereotypically gay, homosexual? <laughs> uh, strange Lisp. voice who else has that i don't know truman capote oh and this next one you're not going to get it all but to me i went oh totally katherine hepburn ah <laughs> sometimes well see i know katherine hepburn mainly is the elderly katherine hepburn on golden pond Catherine <laughs> hepburn, you're my knight in shining armor <laughs> But he's talking about, obviously, a younger Catherine Hepburn in that specific voice. So you mix Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn, and you get Hannibal Lecter. I can can hear that. You look like a rube, (laughs) Clarice. Yeah, and I think he kind of brings a little too much of that out in Red Dragon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he does a better job with it in Science of the Lambs. Totally. Totally. Like, I wouldn't say that the performance in Red Dragon is worthy of an Oscar. No. This, absolutely. Yeah. This is, I mean, not strictly ironic, but you might describe it as such. Uh, This is the one movie, except for Hannibal Rising, I think, that Dino De Laurentiis did not produce. He produced Manhunter, and then when Manhunter failed, he passed on this one and gave it to Orion. Let them produce it. He didn't make a fucking dime off this movie. And then he produced Manhunter and Red Dragon. The other two that did not do nearly as well as this one did. <laughs> so I attribute this film, because again, I saw it so young, I attribute this film to why, you know, everybody has their biggest fear. 
My biggest fears are stupid and irrational, and I'm totally aware of that. And I'm pretty happy that that's my biggest fear. Spiders, Chucky. Yes. (laughs) But my biggest rational fear, which a lot of people will say isn't even that rational because they say that the odds of it happening are actually quite low. But my biggest rational fear is being abducted. Yeah. And I think this movie does a lot for that. I very, very specifically remember connecting to the senator's daughter. Right. That's why you had that very appropriate reaction that you shared with us in a previous episode when you talked about a cop coming up and you had already called AAA and he was like... I'll take you to a restaurant. And I was like, uh, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Fucking creeper. Right. Even if it was purely innocent or semi-innocent and he just wanted to hit on you. Exactly. Like, even if that's just the case, like, you knew. You knew how to protect yourself and that was very smart of you. Well... It also has to do with the fact that my mother would constantly bring up the fact that I am too nice of a person. Again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, guys. <laughs> I'm not trying to make myself sound like a great person. but Like na- too nice, like naively so. Yes, naively nice. And that is part of my nature. I mean, that's why a lot, that's, you know, why I'm partly a teacher, because it's in my nature to help people. So my mom... <laughs> Would always bring it up, like, don't you dare help people, like, random people walking around, Mm -hmm. like, you know, only do it if you have someone else with you, and usually if that's an adult, and specifically if it's me, you know? Um, And I I have a very vivid memory of talking to my mom, being like, Mom, if a person is mentally disabled, I'm going to help them. And she was like, they aren't mentally disabled, they're lying to you! (laughs) Okay? She grew up with the Ted Bundys of the world and stuff like mm-hmm. that. She knew people could fool you in order to abduct and murder you. Yeah, but so, I re- like, in the scene where we see the senator's daughter screaming because mm-hmm. she sees the nail on the wall. Yeah, and she freaks out because she knows somebody else has been kept down there, too. I used to think about that uh-huh. when I was a little kid. I was like, mm-hmm. that could happen to me. Like... I, I mean, that was... So that's why you're so fucked up, huh? It was kind of my catchphrase when I was a kid. It's just that like, could be me. I don't want to wake up in a basement. <laughs> in some pit in a basement? That, that's <laughs> like my one of my very best friends. Hi, Jesse, if you're listening. I used to say that to her all the time because she's even worse than me when it comes to wanting to be helpful to people uh-huh. and being naively nice. Yes, Jesse, you are naively nice if you're listening. So I would be like, Jesse... You are going to wake up in a person's basement. Nice to say that to her all the time. <laughs> and this is where that fear came from. This is where that intense, like, I am terrified that someone is going to abduct me. So influential in how you live your life. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right, then. That said, what do you think this movie's Rotten Tomato score is? 100. 95. Uh. There are a couple people... Who walked away with a negative impression of this film. That's ridiculous. It is a little bit ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like, how are you going to walk away saying this movie sucked? I don't know. I, yeah. yeah. That's why, I mean, I kind of, I've kind of been thinking about this, and I, I know it's also not a good rating system. I'm thinking about moving away from Rotten Tomatoes, and it's how, what percentage of reviewers liked it more than they disliked it. And move it into, like, a, a Metacritic, where... They aggregate scores given to people. They also do a liked it, didn't like it scale where it's positive, mixed, and negative. They do a three scale. 
and Metacritic gives it an 85 because they're averaging out like 17 of those are positive and two are mixed. There are no negative reviews for this movie, but 85 is the aggregate score based on scores they gave it. And that's the thing is if you give a movie four and a half out of five stars, that's 90% right there. If you give a movie four out of five stars, that's 80% right there. So it's kind of a bummer turning things like stars into ratings, mm-hmm. especially if you use a four star system like a lot of people do. Three stars is 75%. Like, so it's it's not great, but maybe it gives you a better idea of the actual critical reception. Metacritic, 85. Rotten Tomatoes, 95. Director Jonathan Demme's smart taught thriller teeters on the edge between psychological study and all-out horror and benefits greatly from stellar performances by Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. Underrated or overrated? I'd say just underrated. Really? Like 98? Yeah. You love those eights. I was actually going to say 97, but I don't know if that's because I always say eight. I don't want to say eight anymore. I would give it a 95. I think I'd give it a 97. What's it missing for you? Chilton is too much of a diabolical fuckhead. Like, he's written into the story just to fuck with them, and he's almost unnecessary. Like, they needed more of an obstacle. There wasn't enough of a mystery going on. Like, there's a mystery in the sense that they don't know what the answer is, but are they really solving all that much? All the shit with the moth and the throat and taking it to the bug people, all that boiled down to two things. Her seeing the moth in the house and knowing that it's him. She didn't do any detective work with that. And as a metaphor for transformation. They didn't go into, like... How does he get them? How does he foster them? We don't really see that much of him like taking... There's one short scene of him taking care of a moth at one point. Mm-hmm. It, there seems to be those kind of loose ends a little bit. It's super fucking minor. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm still giving it a 95. Which is one of my highest ever scores. I, did, have I given any... Did I give Get Out 100? I don't know. Let me see. I'm going to look real quick. I gave something 100. I don't remember. No, because when we were watching this, you said this might be your first 100. Oh. Especially since, well, you said also we don't know prior to the movies we watched this year. We don't know. You and I both gave Get Out a 95. You gave the original Rosemary's Baby a 100. I gave it Ah. a 95. There it is. We both gave Cabinet of Dr. Caligari a 90. You gave Babadook 94, I gave it a 92. So I, I'm i really racking my brain and I'm trying to figure out why I'm not giving it a 100. I feel like <laughs> it's really dumb. But I feel like any time Clarice isn't on the screen, I'm not as engaged. So maybe that's it. Yeah. I feel like it's a little bit of a bummer that we didn't get any of Bill's backstory through Bill. I'm totally okay with that. It was all theoretical. He's not a very interesting character. I think he could be, though. In the book, he's not to me. To me. To me. Like, I think Red Dragon is absolutely fascinating. Buffalo Bill, we do get some of his backstory, and I was just like... I feel like Thomas Harris didn't do enough to make me care about him. 
It's so weird because... He's kind of just a jackass. But I mean, in Manhunter, you gave a 90, and we Mm -hmm. got practically none of the Tooth Fairy, the Red Dragon, in that. And in Red Dragon, you gave it a 77. The movie where we get a lot of him, and he's played by Ray Fiennes. That was based on the fact that the movie itself altogether isn't great. No, I'm just saying it's interesting that... When you get what you want, the movie isn't great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I don't I know gave, how they screwed up Red Dragon. It's I, such a great cast. I gave Manhunter and Red Dragon an 85 each, and I gave this an, a 95. So again, I I love the scenes that we have with Buffalo Bill, actually. I think he does a fantastic job with it, but that's all I need of him. Because, like I said, Thomas Harris's backstory for him, to me, isn't interesting. When you can't make me like your killer, then, or, or like, you know, give me something that I want to know more about it. Like, he's just a guy who hates himself and wants to be someone that others find desirable. That's, that's literally all he is. There's not much else to him. Yeah. So... He's not interesting to me. He's not intriguing. They don't make him empathetic in any way. Right. Because even when you you make him sort of like close to empathetic, like he's not really transgendered. He just is using it as an excuse. Yeah, he just hates himself. Yeah. And I can understand that and I can be sympathetic with that, but... But I mean like at every turn, like if he was transgendered, right? Like I could feel for his plight, but he's not... He is misappropriating what a real transgender person actually goes through. And that makes him despicable. Like the one point where he could be theoretically sympathetic, you know, when we get to see the reason why he is the way he is, like we can with Dollarhide and Red Dragon and Manhunter, with the abuse as a child, the deformity, like all of that stuff... The one point where we could with Buffalo Bill, it's like, no, he's just an asshole. I think what we get from him is great. I think it's enough. I think it's good. I love his, I love Anthony Hopkins in this. He's a phenomenal, fantastic, amazing. And, of course, I think that Jodie Foster is just absolutely incredible. The only things, I, like I said, like, kind of the scene where we watch him escaping, I don't care. It's not interesting to me, I guess. Yeah. And I don't care about Jack Crawford in this movie. I think it was a huge impact when we saw the stringing up of Charles Napier. Like he was like an angel or something like that. to me... No, no. These are like iconic visual moments. Right. But to me, that looks dumb. At the time, it did not look dumb. At the time, it really captured people. Including when he does the Undertaker sit up and then rips off his face. That's also like super iconic. That is Lecter, you know. And they needed to make him feel impactful because... Like in all these movies, he's he's really not the main villain. And so they needed to show you why he is awful. Because we hadn't seen it to this point. Like it, it, Like up to this point, it's all theoretical. That he is a horrible, horrible human being. They just talk about how he eats people. But now we're seeing it. And we get to see the fact that he tore somebody's face off. And, you know, murdered these men. And now he's going to eat Dr. Chilton and we believe it. Whereas before it might have been like, oh, just a footnote in the story. Now we believe it. All right. Sounds the Lambs. Anything else to say? A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans. 
and a nice Chianti. Really, really good movie. Fucking fantastic. Very good. All right. Before we move on, Kelsey, slash cards. Yes. Name three horror movies starring Anthony Hopkins. I challenge you to not do more than one from the Hannibal series. Wow. Okay. I challenge. Well, let me just name those. Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, Red Dragon. Right? So, by default, I've at least gotten it. Other horror movies starring Anthony Hopkins. The Wolfman. (laughs) He's great in Westworld, but that's not a horror movie. It's a TV show. (laughs) I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. The example they give is Magic, which I have never heard of. I've never seen it. But there's also The Right. Oh, The Right! He plays a priest in that, doesn't he? I think so. We never saw it. Yeah. The cover is him, and he has, like, a cross on his head. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember seeing that. It's an exorcist movie, A lot of covers of movies really stick out in my mind, because when I was a little kid, I would go to... We'd be... I was a latchkey kid for part of my life when... We hated daycare, my brother and I, and when he was like 10, I was like 8, my dad walked in to this daycare woman, like, berating this kid, like, going off on him, and he was like, that was awful, and we're like, yeah, that's like, it's every day, we hate it here, (laughs) and he's like, all right, well, Josh, if you can be responsible, you're gonna watch your brother, and so he, so we would be home a lot, and so I'd ride my bike to the movie store, And the movie store? Is that the term? Yes. The rental place. The movie store is what we called it. The the local blockbuster. No, see, mine was In-N-Out Video. They got sued. (laughs) In-N-Out lost and ended up buying the name from them. And and they made a lot of money and called it something else. but I would just walk the aisles and I'd see this of uh, VHS tapes and I'd see these same covers over and over and over again. And then when they moved to DVD, I saw those too. So certain covers are just ingrained in my brain. And, Me too. And that's one of them. Although that came out in the 2000s. Yeah, that came out not too long ago. <laughs> oh, no. It came out like 10 in, years the, ago. in the aughts. Yeah. So I was in my 20s then. Yeah, but we didn't have movie stores anymore. That was when they were all closing down. They were, but they were still there. The Blockbuster near my house was up for a long time. There was a Hollywood video that was also there. That's where I got all my wrestling videos, the special interest videos, they called them. <laughs> anyway, my question for you is, what art movement inspired the unique visual style of films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? German Expressionism. That's correct. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and do. Yeah. All right, Kelsey. Moving on, we're going to talk about 2017's memoir of a murderer. From South Korea. From South Korea, yeah. Directed by Shin Yan Wan, written by Jo Yoon Hwang and Young Ha Kim, based on the novel by Young Ha Kim. What is the premise of Memoir of a Murderer? An old man with dementia who just so happened to have been a serial killer. Yeah. His daughter has started to date a man that this this old man believes to be a young serial killer. And it's a problem 
Because he's got dementia. And, he and he's got to find remember. some way to deal with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you think people should watch it? First of all, you have to like subtitles. Yeah, it is a Korean film. There's no um, dub. Right. We didn't at least have one. Where did we watch it? We watched it on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Just no dub. There's no dub. It's so you sub. have to be okay with, with uh, subtitles. subtitles. Which, usually with a horror movie, I'm very much against because you miss the imagery. But I think this is okay. This is a lot slower. This is a lot more about their acting, which is a bummer because you miss some of their facial like responses because you're reading. Right. That, which is why, I mean, this isn't my... I'm totally fine with foreign films. <laughs> I've seen a bunch of foreign language films. That's not the reason I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I was wondering throughout the whole thing what this would be like in an English language film. So we could focus... Like if Americans the remade it? Yeah. So we could we could focus a little bit more on the acting, on the facial expressions, on the stuff going on, and not as much reading the, the dialogue. We would do something to fuck it up. We probably would. We would do something. Especially with Korean movies. Anytime we remake a Korean film, <laughs> we end up fucking it up. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, don't see it if you want to see a horror movie, because it's, it's a thriller. It's a crime thriller. Yeah. More than anything else. It was really good. I really liked it. I would recommend it. But if, not not, so, not necessarily if you want to see a horror movie. <laughs> right. It's not a slasher or anything like that. Which we thought it might be. It might have a little bit more elements of that. I thought it would be more psychologically scary than it was. Right. I thought it would be more scary like Silence of the Lambs is scary. Right. So if you want to watch it, you absolutely can. I have no idea what I'm going to put here. Because on top of it not being in English, like no one's seen it. Yes. Yeah, so- Am I going to find some review uh, and I'll put in snippets of different reviews here? I, I don't know. Whatever I put here, listen to it for like half a minute or a minute or so. And when we come back, we will talk about 2017's Memoir of a Murderer. Nope. Not even a single English language resource worth sharing. Kelsey. Yep. Before we get into Memoir of a Murderer, can I just point out that that was the stupidest fucking production company promo I've ever seen. It's like 30 goddamn seconds of this ball in this box, and it's like laughing, and then it jumps in the box, and then it says, Showbox. It actually says shoebox. No, no. It says showbox, and then it writes shoebox. No. Oh, it's the other it way around. It writes showbox. And it says shoebox. They shoe say shoebox. Yeah. Anyway, it's the stupidest fucking promo. And then it begins like old boy I wrote. Oh. With an older man, you know, middle-aged or whatever, and I guess older, sitting kind of in a police station off a street in Korea. Oh. You know, sitting there looking weird and disoriented uh-huh. and chatting with a friend. You know, just a dude behaving strangely in a police station. It's exactly the way old boy starts out. <laughs> Except he's flapping his wings. And he's drunk. <laughs> and he's drunk. This guy has Alzheimer's. Yes. So our dude, his name is byung Let's just get that out of the way, guys. Obviously, we don't speak Korean. Right. I, we're not going to be able to pronounce their names. I'm sorry. Especially since they're they're spelled differently 
in depending on your source. They spell the names differently. The subtitles spell them one way. The credits spell them another way. <laughs> um, also, like many Asian countries, they put the family name first and they flip it. So every time that he says Heun, which is his daughter's name, it spells Yunhe. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with that? What's like, what am I supposed to do with that? Here's what I'm going to do, guys. I'm going to call the old guy, old guy. And I'm going to call the daughter, daughter. And I'm going to call the young guy, young guy. Okay. So <laughs> and just the cop so you know, is cop. <laughs> just so you know, Byung-Soo is the old guy. Teju is the young guy. Yun-Hee is the daughter. And... On Byung-man is the cop. Uh, he is actually the guy who ran the hotel in Old Boy. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, Daisuo is the guy who ran the, the hotel, the one who gets his teeth pulled out. So, yeah. So, we open up on this guy. He's walking around in the snow, and he doesn't remember anything. And then we see him in a police station. And what you figure out very quickly is that this man has Alzheimer's and that he is an extremely unreliable narrator. They try to fix it. So we meet his daughter. His daughter comes and picks him up. And his daughter is like, here, I got you a recorder to record yourself on. If you guys have seen Memento... It's very much like Memento. Very much like Memento. We don't see a lot of reference back to the material he records. It happens every once in a while. It happens and sometimes when, it's really important. Well, it happens when it's a really big plot element. But otherwise, we never see him referencing the recordings. Right. But he does record himself. Mm -hmm. He also has a journal that he keeps on his computer. And all of this is meant to help him remember things. Right. One of those things is that he's a murderer. We learn right away... That he is a murderer and he he sees news of murders happening and he runs and he checks his shoes. Now, I think also we should mention, I assume you agree with me, that we just, we're just going to tell this story as it was told. We're not going to get into, was this real? Right. Is this in his memory? Did this actually, we're not going to get into all of that. Because in my opinion, it's a point, it's a pointless endeavor we see what we see, and that's all we get. Right. For this conversation, there's think, no need to go. Well, I, I also think it's pretty obvious. Uh, I, I think people are making it more convoluted than it needs to be. <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious when what we see isn't real. And I think it's very rare. I think most of what we see is real. There's one moment where we see a woman as a certain woman, and it turns out she's someone else. That's one of the rare times they actually do that. And through most of the movie, what we see, what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get, WYSIWYG. I love you. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna go down that road. We won't go down that road. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> So, yeah, he needs to check his shoes to make sure he didn't do it because he wouldn't be able to remember. But he also tells us in his journal about the fact that he's a murderer and he tells us a little bit of his backstory and about how he kills. First person he ever killed was his father because he was abusive. And when his father took him to give him the beating of his life, he turned tables on him and ended up strangling him. 
And that was his modus operandi, which is strangulation with your bare hands. And he killed his father, and then it didn't stop. He's like Dexter. He's very much like Dexter. That's exactly what I wrote down here, is that he thinks his murders or purgings are justified because he saves more lives than he ends, like fucking Dexter, I wrote here. Later on in the movie, we start to learn a little bit more about him, and as it gets further on, it takes less and less for him to kill. He becomes less and less like that, and he kills because he actually has a taste for it. Uh, and that's why it blurs a little bit. I literally wrote that down. I don't agree. In almost that same one, uh, he says... If you're talking about the wife... No, I'm not talking about the wife. I know we find out later that it's the wife. Um, and so he has a reason to kill her. But he mentions, if I was still killing, I would kill this poetry instructor. Because his laugh is a... Or, no, the woman's laugh is a... Because he's a douchebag. Yeah, because he's a douchebag poetry instructor and he's pretentious. I would kill him. This woman who has the hots for me, I'd kill her because she has an annoying laugh. Like, the offense well, She's also crazy. He didn't know that. He met her once <laughs> at the time he said that. Okay. And because she had a, a braying laugh. It's every, what it used to be, it, this is good for the world. They're more harmful than good. I'm saving lives by killing this person. Turns into anybody who makes the slightest offense is worth killing. I feel like it's murderer humor. <laughs> Like, like, I think it's like a, I'd totally fucking kill you if I was still killing people, you know? Like, kind of his, it's his humor, it's his joke, because he kills people. He has a bad sense of humor, that's true, they make a point of that in this movie. <laughs> but he, you know, he when he does that, he's like, I could kill you. You know, and then the person laughs, and he's like, wait, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> so, like, I, I think honestly... He does think that. He would kill them if he was still killing. He has a desire to kill these people. And it kind of ramps up. The, so this is what I wrote. The people he thinks deserve to die now make small offenses, like an abrasive laugh. He then says it's been 17 years since his last murder, and he doesn't know why he killed her. Now, we find out later. I mean, I'm just full spoilers here. We find out later that it was his wife. It's because she was cheating on him and because who he thought was his daughter was not really his daughter. So there was ultimately a reason. But at this point in the movie, it seems like he has strayed the path from righteous Dexter to just plain old murderer. So, as Chris pointed out, he has Alzheimer's. So he is concerned about whether or not he is doing the killings because currently they are finding dead bodies around his town. And he checks his shoes, as Chris said, and there's no mud on them. So he's like, okay, maybe I didn't do it. Yeah. And But he constantly wakes up. And he's just like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I yeah, did. Yeah, he blacks out. Yeah. At one point, he gets in a fender bender in the fog. And the trunk of this person in front of him pops open. And he sees in a bag some blood dripping out. And he sops it up a little bit. And puts it on like a, like a napkin or something. <laughs> Which... Of all the things that happen in the movie, this is probably my least believable moment. Because the dude doesn't get out of his car. Nothing. He watches him. We see him in the in the side view mirror just watching him. But I still don't believe that. Yeah. Why would he let this man do that? Right. And then he comes out there and he's just like, 
you know, let it go. I'll be on my way, you be on your way, and we'll be good. We don't need to swap numbers or anything. He's like, well, maybe we should just in case. And he's like, well, how about we just take care of our own repairs? And he's like, well, just in case. And he gives the man his card. He's a vet. Yes. But I had a hard time believing that he would just let a dude inspect his murder. Yeah. I think they're... (laughs) I think it's just supposed to be a tense moment, and they're trying to make the the young guy seem like he... Is crazy. Is, you know, one of those stoic crazy guys. <laughs> the slow and silent type, you know, who might just murder you at a moment's notice, but he's perfectly calm and rational, a la Lecter. His heartbeat never gets above 85. So the guy drives off, and of course, immediately... The old man takes out his recorder and records it, which is a good thing, because there was no way he was going to remember that interaction. Right. And we get this guy's license plate number quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it comes up a lot in the movie. And he takes the blood sample home and he looks at it in his microscope, because like I said, he's a vet. He is a doctor. He sees that it's typo blood cells. And that deer, who the guy claimed it was, was he hit a deer, doesn't have typo. So it, it couldn't have been deer. It had to have been a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he tries to turn the guy in. Turns out the guy is a cop. Yep. Uh, so he knew when the guy called in because the other cops are like, this guy called in about your deer. And no, he called in and said you had a body in your trunk. And the guy's like, ha, 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 it was a deer. Ha, ha, ha. And they all laugh. And then that's like the end of it at that point. And now this young killer knows that the guy tried to turn him in. And he has his business card, so he goes there. But our main guy had to shut it down. Because he accidentally overdosed a cat, a la memento. He gives him too many doses because he has a bad memory. So this is kind of straight up ripped from memento, but just applied in a different context. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... It's sad. It's very sad. This is a pretty kitty, and the mom was really upset. It was so sad. Yeah. But so while he's standing out in front of the guy's vet hospital, along comes our main guy's daughter. Yes. Bad, bad coincidence. With some friends. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh, this is my dad's place or whatever. And, mm-hmm. the, and she also finds out that the dude is a cop, which is why she trusts him a little bit more. Because he goes to the hair salon that one of the girls she's with, her parents own. So... She knows that he's a cop. And they're like, ooh, isn't he handsome? <laughs> Which, when you think about what we learn later about his hair. Yeah. I, he- I mentioned that when we were watching it. So we find out later that he had a head injury when he was a kid. He was also severely beaten. Um, he had to have part of his skull replaced. And it's like a removable thing. Is that a real thing? thing? Can well, you, you do can that? Get, well, you can get plates in your skull, but it goes under your skin. Right. Like, this we, is just, can, like, Do we just have big pieces plate. of our fucking head that we can take off? No. So that was made up. That's made up, yeah. Why? Because it to looks be creepy. creepy. Yeah. But again, they said earlier, like we just said, he goes to a barbershop. Right, to get his hair cut. <laughs> that would certainly be the talk <laughs> of the barbershop. And that girl would know that he had some head injury and had a plate in his head that's removable. <laughs> It's ridiculous. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a Also, he's a very good-looking man. He is. He's a handsome guy. He's a very good-looking man. And they they comment on that, about how handsome he is. So, when she's walking home alone late one night, and there are no cabs out, he's like, hey, why are you walking home alone? Get in. I'll take you. And she's like, well, she knows he's a cop. 
you know, and... What movie did I think of when this scene happened? I don't remember. Maniac Cop! You saw a cop and you thought you'd be safe. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. She saw a cop, she thought, although she is not immediately killed like the woman in Maniac Cop was. <laughs> so, in the meantime, this guy knows that he's a killer and he starts to, old the old guy, starts to profile him a la Lecter. He starts to use his experience as a killer to profile this other guy and to find out who he is. And these things keep, like, dripping out of his head. It's really... If you've ever known anyone who has Alzheimer's or has dementia, they do a very good job of showing what it's like. And it's really hard. It's really hard to watch because if you've ever dealt with someone like that, then you know what it is to go through that. Now, he also has these kind of seizure things that... It's just the movie's way of telling you he's going to forget everything. Right. But no, I mean, it's not always that way. Sometimes it's like that's when his murderous instinct kicks in and takes over. (sighs) Sometimes it's kind of all purpose. He has seizures that can cause him to behave unpredictably. But... A lot of the time, you don't, there is no like switchover moment. If you've ever talked to somebody with Alzheimer's dementia, you just talk to them and they'll like repeat something back to you immediately as if they didn't say it earlier. Or you can say something and they'll ask you a question, which implies that you didn't just say that like immediately afterwards. There is no like switch. It's just things kind of fall out and they don't know. And it's very frustrating because he knows it's happening, but. He doesn't know what he's forgetting, you know, so he tries to remember and all that. But he's profiling and he records. He'd say, I'd go to the reservoir. Uh, He'd cut an artery and drain the blood so it would be lighter. And, you know, just like Hannibal Lecter, he's using his experience to profile the guy. You mean Will Graham? No, Hannibal Lecter, because he is a killer like Hannibal Lecter is. And he uses that experience to give him insight, whereas Will Graham doesn't have that experience. True. So he gets really upset at his daughter. And even one point he strangles her uh, thinking that he's just that she's just some woman from his poetry club who has a big thing for him. To a crazy extent, the woman jumps in his car. She's de- no, she just seems desperate. She's an overly eager admirer. <laughs> she's not dangerous in any way. She's just obnoxious, really. But when his murderous instinct kicks in, he goes to strangle her, which he wouldn't normally do. But he has that mo- that tick moment where he has like a seizure. And um, he goes to strangle her, and it turns out it's actually his daughter. And he's very disgusted with himself. He says his memory is going, but his hands still remember the killing. And this is again where he brings up, maybe I did actually do it, and I just don't know. These women were strangled. These women were strangled. But what we find out about the stranglings, the new stranglings, is that they're done with a cord of some kind. And he always did it with his bare he hands. Always, he was always connected. His hands remember the killing. This one is detached. It's not a passionate thing for this one. It, it's always been a passionate thing for our guy. Our guy. Like, he's not a killer. They really do make you sympathize with this dude, in spite of the fact that he's a killer. They make you like him a lot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so you start to wonder, is this this the case of the ultimate unreliable narrator? And it is frustrating because there 
are certain moments, and you never know if this is what's going to happen. They give you no way of knowing. Sometimes he uses his Alzheimer's to his advantage. And he's just pretending. And he pretends that he doesn't know what's going on. And then there are other times where you are convinced he is pretending, and then, no, he really just does not know what's going on Right. right now. And so you wonder, when he's profiling, and he's recounting, like, I would go to the reservoir, I would drain the body to make it lighter... Is he just recounting what he actually did? And you don't really know. But we have a good idea that this guy is really creepy and he's actually the new killer, this young guy. Um, Yeah. And so at one point, he confronts the dude. The dude is taking his daughter on a date and he throws her in and our guy throws her in in his car and walks up to the young guy and he calls him on it. He's like... I know you're a murderer. I know that you recognized me. And Teju is like, did you just confess? And his response, he's like smiles and he goes, I have dementia. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> it's this really great moment. But he, he basically tells him, I don't give a fuck that you're a murderer. Just stay give, yeah, the stay hell the away, from, away my from my daughter. daughter. Yeah. Go ahead and kill all you want. I'm not going to turn you in. Which I'm is a bunch of bullshit because like he had already turned in. The blood. Right. But at this point, he's like, fine. If I can't stop you, I'm totally fine with that. You do you. Just stay the fuck away from my daughter. Mm -hmm. She's like super important to me. And he ends up giving the blood sample to, like you say, he turns in the blood, to his cop buddy. The one we met at the beginning. They have lunch together occasionally. And he says, hey, you know what? Check it. Check it for me. And the dude's like, well, it's going to be a week. A week needs to go by to actually test uh, the blood, and that, and he he forgets the entire week. Yeah, he just loses the entire week. All of a sudden, he he he's in contact with his buddy, and the buddy says it belongs to some animal, probably a deer. And, and you're like, what the fuck? We know this guy's a killer, don't we? And the guy is now engaged to his daughter. And she's telling him it's been way more than a week since then. You're the one that told me to call him here. And yeah. our main guy is just like, what the fuck is going on? This is the split happens when he has a seizure while he's drinking his own urine. Ah, he's, he's waiting outside. Out of, the he, killer. Yeah, yeah, he's staking him out and he pees into a bottle ah. and then he drinks from the bottle. It's very much like it steals so much from Memento. <laughs> They obviously saw Memento it because the beer where everyone around the bar spits into it and he sees them do it and then he drinks it like it was nothing. Um, it's the same moment. But during that moment, he has a seizure and he wakes up and he's staring right at the killer and he's wearing this Cosby sweater <laughs> and they're having dinner and he's excited that his daughter is marrying this guy. But then that ends up being him lying. Yes. He knows he knows that this guy like somewhere in there he remembers the guy and he gets his whatever drug he has in his syringe and he's going to attack him. He imagines attacking him but doesn't get around to it. He just freezes. And um, because she walks in. Yeah, and then she walks in and and they they leave peacefully. Next thing we know, he wakes up tied to the floor and he's got um, zip ties around his hands and around his neck and he's tied to the wall and Teju is there and he is reading his journal and he's making edits 
And deleting things. And deleting things. He adds, I should kill you, and he, to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're he- wondering, I'm wondering at least, where is you and he during this struggle? Because it's in the dude's house. And he tries to get to his medical bag and get the drugs or get a scalpel or something to free himself or to attack the guy. And he just can't do it. And then he wakes up. No way of knowing if it was real or not because everything's clear. Everything's been cleaned up. His sister is cooking something or whatever. And his daughter is sleeping in bed. And he's like, nope, you're out of here. I need to take care of this. You're in danger. You're going to stay at the convent with my sister. He takes her out to the car and says, um, just take care of her for a few days. You know, then she can come home. We find out later two things. Number one, his sister isn't alive. His sister killed herself after he killed their father. And he's been having these imaginary conversations. This is like the, when I said earlier, very little is actually not real. This is that one big thing that's not real. Mm-hmm. Every conversation he has with his sister is just him imagining having a conversation with his sister. And he doesn't know that she's actually dead. And so he needs to come to that realization and at the same time realizes that he didn't send his daughter and his sister away in a taxi to a convent. He sent his daughter away with Teju and didn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. Thought he was a cab driver. That's revealed later. But that's what we know. He's sending her away with Teju. And so he doesn't check his computer or anything like that. And he follows Teju at one point. He tracks him down and he follows him out to this abandoned seafood restaurant of some sort in the middle of nowhere. He breaks in and he finds a video of a woman tied up. It's the woman in red, the woman from the poetry circle, the woman he thought he was strangling, wearing the same thing that she was wearing that very same night. When he ended up strangling his daughter instead. Mm-hmm. It's that woman from the poetry class. And so he brings it to his buddy. Who then confronts Teju. And we find out that there's a call record from our guy, Byung-Soo, to this woman. Because he the, accidentally called her that night. Because the killer called her. Oh, and then tossed the phone at mm-hmm. him. Right, yeah. And then he's like, oh, sorry, I didn't call you by mistake. Bye. And he hangs up, but now there's a record and they think it's Byung-Soo and they go to that bamboo field because. Well, we haven't said what the bamboo field is yet. Oh, good point. He bought this property and planted bamboo there and he just goes out there to think as far as his daughter knows. But really, that's where he's buried all of his victims. Mm -hmm. And so they go out to this bamboo field and they realize I mean, after he he gets away from the cops and then they go to the bamboo field and they dig up all these bodies and they dig up this woman from the poetry class. And they're like, that's it. Because the statute of limitations is up in all of his murders. It's been more than 15 years or whatever is their statute of limitations. They don't do cold cases over there, I guess. Mm -hmm. So this is what they need to actually arrest him is a woman killed recently. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the moment when it's revealed that he doesn't have a sister anymore, that his sister's dead. Because he's like, oh, I sent her, they're, they're, they say, where is um, Yoon-hee? And he says, she's with my sister. And they're like, dude, you don't have a sister. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he goes to the convent and it's just this rundown, dilapidated, abandoned building. And he's like, oh, shit. Because then he realizes that he sent his sister with Teju. We also find out during a flashback at this point 
that Yunhee is not actually his daughter, that the last woman that he killed before he got into his car accident, which gave him his brain damage, was his wife. And he was going to kill her because she was cheating on him. And he finds out during the process, she says, do not kill Yunhee. And he's like, why would I kill her? She's my daughter. And she just kind of looks at him blankly. And he's like, she's not my daughter, is she? And then he kills his wife. Mm -hmm. That's the last person he killed. Mm -hmm. And we cut back to Teju out at this remote cabin with Yunhee. And he tells her, you know, hey, man, your dad... Turns out he's a murderer. He killed the woman in the poetry class. And we found your mother's necklace on a body that was buried there. He killed your mother. And she's like, you know, freaking out and everything. He's like, it's going to be okay. Meanwhile, our guy finds on his tape recorder a recording of Teju admitting everything. And the reason he has that is because when he was struggling with his bag, when he was all tied up, he accidentally turned the recorder on. Mm-hmm. And so he uses that to convince his cop friend that it is this guy is the killer. And it's pretty funny because when he does it, the killer is behind him. <laughs> yes. <freaks> so <laughs> he breaks in. It's this really great moment. No, it's, I'm talking about when they're in the bamboo field. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in the bamboo field. He's on the phone with him. And he's on the phone with them. And uh, Teju like taps him on the shoulder or whatever. He goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> And he, and he pretends he's talking to his wife. Yeah. Yes, I have underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so then the cop goes out to the cabin where the killer and the daughter are, like Chris was just saying. And he busts in. And there's a Halloween moment where he's standing there. Instead of holding a knife, he has his gun and a, and a phone. And he's talking to our guy. And you see, standing there in the darkness, the ever so faint face of Teju. It's really good. And then it comes into the light, just like um, in Halloween. And he strangles him with the cord to an iron and kills him. But Yunhee sees this. Mm -hmm. And now he has to kill Yunhee. Mm -hmm. During this whole time, by the way, he's wearing a hoodie with a snakeskin print. Did you notice that? No. Yeah, he's wearing a hoodie and the print on the hoodie is like snakeskin. He's a snake. He's a reptile. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. Metaphor through costume. <laughs> uh, this is when we also find out about his skull problem. And then um, our guy shows up pretending to look for you. And he, do you know where she is or whatever? And then they get into this big confrontation, knock down, drag out. And at the end of it all, our dude wins. Yes. And... Kills the guy. Yes. And ends up getting sent away to a psychiatric ward to live out the rest of his life. And his daughter still visits him sometimes to give him haircuts, even though she's disgusted. And she's really freaked out. There's this moment in the movie where she's crying. And Teju at one point said, I'm doing you a great mercy by killing you. you do you really want to be the daughter of a murderer? And... So at one point, Byung-soo says, don't worry, there's not a drop of my blood in you. You are not the daughter of a murderer. And, like, gives her that kind of relief. But I don't think it's that much of a relief to her because she really did love her father. I think it's 
I think right? she feels better when she hears the recording. Yes, so he she, recorded over everything on that recorder, by the way. That was track one of one. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. But so she listens to it, and he's recording, don't forget the one thing that matters is your daughter. You are only alive to save her. And I think that's, that's what, what resonates with her. That's what he records when he's her. on the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's also before her... he realized that she wasn't his daughter, too, before he remembered that. No, he already knew. She hears that, and I think it softens her. Because I think she's disgusted with him at first, and yeah. then she hears that, and she realizes, you know, even though he is a killer, and even though he's not really my dad, I do still love him, and I do still care about him. Right. And he's put away. He can't harm anybody else. But she still visits him occasionally. And then it cuts to that shot of him with the short hair, because she cuts his hair for him. He's walking out from a tunnel, like a train tunnel. And then he sees Teju. Teju turns around and they lock eyes and then that's the end of the movie. Except what does he say at the end? Don't trust your memory. Teju is still alive. So it's very much a memento ending. Where he just keeps Continues recycling to this belief. Yeah. I mean, it's, not as, it's not as impactful because he can't do anything about it. He's trapped in this place. Well, that's the thing. You don't really know where he is at the end. As far as we get to see as the audience, he's outside. As far as we know, he should be in the mental asylum. Right. But the prosecutor that we see interviewing him when he's in the hospital immediately after the incident asks him, why did you kill Teju? No, we know Teju is dead. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Talking about where he is. Did he somehow escape? We don't know. I don't think he did. I think this is in his mind. Because we don't see this location anywhere in the movie except for the very first scene, which is just this last scene. And that is Memoir of a Murderer. It's called that because this whole time he has his journal that he keeps. He's telling a story about how he is a murderer, what his thoughts and feelings are about that, and how he has Alzheimer's. And how he needs to save his daughter. It's all contained in a book, basically, that he's writing. Uh, So it's called Memoir of a Murderer, which is an unremarkable title. The actual Korean translation is A Murderer's Guide to Memorization, (laughs) which is kind of fun. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say, Kelsey? There were a couple of things that I was a little, like, confused about. First of all, why is a man with Alzheimer's driving? Because they don't know he has Alzheimer's. That kind of stuff isn't necessarily reported. So... They don't know. But yeah, if he blacks out, he definitely shouldn't be driving. When he thinks to himself, if I were me, if it were me, I'd go to the reservoir. So he goes to the reservoir, right? He totally puts his hands all over this woman's body. Yeah, and he gets mud on his shoes, which the daughter cleans up. Yeah. And as far as we know, he's either going there the first time to verify that this guy is a killer, because he sees her in that bag, the bag that he saw in the dude's trunk, or... He's just returning to the scene of the crime, and we never saw him dump the body in the first place. Right. Right. But either way... Either way, he's getting his handprints all over. (laughs) Yeah, and she figures, like, you said you went to the bamboo grove, but there was mud all over your shoes. So she starts questioning him, you know. There's a lot of discussion in this movie about him not wanting to be a burden on his daughter. I don't want you to change my diapers. I'll go to a home. That kind of stuff. 
and she doesn't want to let him go to a home. And that's, that's, I just totally agree with that. I don't ever want to be somebody's burden. I don't want any, but I, I think that's, for me, I would never want to have somebody that I care about and love have to take care of me in that yeah. state. And you should have me. this conversation with your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Kelsey and I have already had this conversation. Mm-hmm. I have told her, I'll wipe your ass. I'll get you dressed. I'll do all that stuff for you that's because I love sweet. you. But I know you don't want that. Mm-hmm. We've had that conversation already. You should have that conversation with your loved ones. Mm-hmm. When he's having a conversation with his sister, she asks if she is being punished and she cries. And you have to remember, this is all in his head. So then he thinks to himself, if she knew that I had killed more than one person, would she still pray for me? And so all of this is really an internal conversation. Yeah. Do I care about myself? Do I forgive myself for what I've done? Mm -hmm. Almost like a split personality. She's like his conscience almost. Mm -hmm. His Jiminy Cricket of sorts. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know if you thought that he feels guilty about what he's done. I think removed from the passion of it all, I think yes. I don't think he likes the fact that he's a murderer. I think, much like Hannibal Lecter says, he was assigned that nature and he gave into it. And he regrets giving into it, but he recognizes that that is his nature. And so he is very matter of fact about it. But I don't think he likes it about himself, which is why you see him fluctuate. His instinct when he feels disgust or he's annoyed is to go right to murder. But when he's actually thinking about it and being philosophical about it, he hates it about himself. (laughs) When he's sitting there in the poetry thing, the second time we get to see it, he's like, I should really quit this. Otherwise, I'm going to kill this douchebag. He says it completely plainly with no emotion. He's just like, otherwise I'm going to kill this douchebag. Mm -hmm. It's it's great. It's really funny. So the woman who follows him, who's like in love with him and gets in his car. Yeah. At one point when he's driving and she's there and she's just yapping, he finally turns to her and he's just like, I've been meaning to ask you, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And then he just leaves her on the road. on the side of the road. (laughs) And she's like, like, was I too desperate? (laughs) Like, she gets all philosophical about it. No, he means it literally. (laughs) Who are you? Or he's just pretending. Yeah. In order to get out of the situation. But again, we don't know. There's a great scene where he is looking for his daughter in a movie theater. Oh, yeah, that's so good. He's, like, like shouting out her name. And he goes from movie theater to... He goes from from, um, screen to screen in this theater. (laughs) And then everyone's, like laughing or whatever and he ends up sitting down <laughs> and forgetting why he's there and he just starts eating the popcorn of the person sitting next yep. to him <laughs> and because they establish that he has this late reaction when it comes to humor he's laughing at all the sad moments and crying at all the funny moments <laughs> and then he asks himself when everyone's gone and he's just sitting in the theater crying why am I crying in this theater <laughs> <laughs> he's a great guy I, I really like him <laughs> I mean, like, as an actor, I thought he did a really good job. Yes. He's played by Kyung Soul. We didn't really talk at all about the killer's background and why he kills people. So his story is it's that... very similar. It is very similar. But his story is that his father was going to beat up his, wa- his mom 
Mm-hmm. And so he starts to almost kill his dad, and then his mom beats him over the head with an iron. And that's why he has that brain damage. Yeah. And so his response is that all women are the same, and all women deserve to die. Yeah. But what's weird is that he's like, but I really did love you, uh, the daughter, and I think that's because he's like, hey, if you were with if you were with your dad all this time, then you could be with me. <laughs> yeah, and not know it, right? And yeah, I think he does, which is why she's not really real. Like she's always in danger when she's with him, but she's not really in immediate danger until she sees him kill the cop. That's why there's that switch, because there's always that possibility that he could just want to spend the rest of his life with her. So we're not going to do Hannibal. No. But Hannibal, spoilers, stop it if you don't want to hear. Skip ahead 30 seconds. So in Hannibal, it ends with him with Clarice, which is why a lot of people don't like it. Right. But the book does a really good job of explaining that exact concept that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. The fact that neither neither Hannibal nor Clarice knows if he's ever going to kill her. Yeah. And so Clarice, I mean, she just kind of, there's nothing she can do. She's basically his prisoner. Yeah. But I mean, he treats her like a goddess, you know, but like mm. still she's just every day. It's just, I don't know. He might kill me today. And that's kind of what you get from Hannibal as well. I mean, he loves her, so like he wants to be with her, but who knows? Yeah. You you never know with a serial killer, with a sociopath. There is a part in the at the very end when he's in the mental institution. Yeah. And he's like, I should kill myself before I forget all of this entirely. Yeah. But then he doesn't have it because it's in his head. I mean, it, it could be that that last moment is his peaceful moment of death. Maybe. That's why he gets to see Teju. It's because Teju's also dead. And they yeah. meet again in the afterlife. So, yeah, the ending, I mean, it's up to interpretation. Yeah. I would like to know how the book ends. Yeah. I would like to know if the book is more read that book. finalizing about it. But yeah. I liked it a lot. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? Does it have a score? It has an audience score. And okay. And that's it. If I had to guess about audience score, I would guess 63. 77, actually. Mm. Higher than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Because if you Google this movie, there is like fucking nothing. <laughs> there is nothing about this movie except for a few reviews that just fucking bash it to shit. Why? About how it it's overly ambitious and it gets too convoluted it's and really there are not. threads hanging and there's like literally not a single thread left hanging in this movie. It wraps except up except for the ending. Well, except for the ending because you don't know, but that's intentionally so. <laughs> it it every gun that it shows goes off. So yeah. like I don't know what they're talking about unless they just got really confused about what was real. And what there's wasn't a lot real. of questions of like you know. What was it all in his happened. head? Yeah. Uh-huh. That kind of stuff. So I think people, that's what I'm saying. I think people overcomplicate itself. For, they overcomplicate it for themselves. And that's why I made it clear before we started that we only took it for what it showed us. Right. Unless it specifically told us that something wasn't real, like the sister or the woman turned out to be his daughter when he strangles her. Like, unless it specifically tells us otherwise, I have no reason to believe that it wasn't real. 
I mean, honestly, movies like this and books like this with an unreliable lit narrator, you just kind of have to take it in one of two ways. One, just sit back and enjoy the ride. Uh-huh. Or two, tell yourself you're seeing it from the narrator's perspective. And this is what the narrator sees. And that's all you're going to be able to see. If you were the narrator, that's all you'd get out of it. Right. And I think that's a really good point, actually, because you need to understand that if you're being told, if, if it's not an omniscient narrator, if it is one of the characters that you're seeing everything th- through the eyes of, um, you're getting, what you're getting is insight into them. We do and why get a, they behave the way they behave. We do get a couple scenes without our main guy. But honestly, I think that actually... Not too many. Not too many. But honestly, the ones that we do see, I think, kind of reinforce the fact that everything he that he has shown us is real. Yeah. Like, specifically, I'm thinking about the ending, where we see a lot of stuff from the killer's perspective. Without him being there. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that just kind of tells us, no, this guy is real. Yeah. Everything that really we have seen killer. about him is real. Yeah. So do you think 77 is underrated or overrated? I'd say maybe a little underrated. I'd maybe give it an 80. I would have given it an 82, actually. It felt right. (laughs) It's a little long. It is. It's like, is it a full two hours? It's a full two hours. The daughter is a little annoying. She's just kind of dumb. She's really just a plot device. Yeah. Because, oh, she loves her father so much. That's why she never fights back when he's tyrannical. (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah, she's not that great. She's an empty vessel. Yeah. They kind of fridge her. Even though they never kill her, they fridge her. This is a term that you may hear, especially commonplace in, in movies now, but it originally comes from comic books. It comes from an old, fuck, is it Green Lantern or Green Arrow? It's one of the DC Green guys where his girlfriend or wife or whatever, uh, he finds her dead and chopped up and stuffed in a fridge. She exists only to give his life meaning and then (laughs) when taken away, give his drive purpose. Mm. And that's it. It's called fridging a character. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are noticing it more and more. And even though she's not killed in this, she's very much fridged. She has one real moment of contributing and she contributes practically nothing Yeah, when she hits the dude over the head at one point. And then the fight between the two guys continues as if that never happened. Yeah. So they do a really poor job with her character, I think. And I don't think that's the actress's fault. I thought she was fine. No, no, no. It's it's written in the story that way. She's just very much just a dumb character. There's nothing to her. Yeah, she seriously just serves as a plot device. I think... The main guy is awesome, and he's really intriguing, and you want to know more about him. Um, I think the biggest problem with his character is the whole face-twitching stroke thing. I know that's just the movie's way of telling us, oh, here it comes. And I'm actually quite glad that they give that to you so that you're not constantly like, did he change or not? Yeah. But it's not realistic at all. Okay, so I looked it up, and it is Green Lantern. Kyle Rayner, his girlfriend, <laughs> was shoved into a fridge. I want to give credit where credit was due. Gail Simone, who is a, is a woman comic book writer, among other things, she has a website called Women in Refrigerators, and that's where the term comes from. Okay. 
I think the killer, the young kid killer, does a good job. He's creepy. He's just intense. I don't think I don't think the movie asks a lot of him. I don't know. I felt like he's not like nuanced like Lecter is. He's no. just straight the entire fucking time. The one time I would say that he's any good is when he tries to seem natural when everyone's laughing early on in the story. And he has to say, but it was a deer. Like, he looks a little uncomfortable that everyone's laughing and he doesn't know how to interact with them. Like, that's probably the deepest moment of acting that he has in the entire movie. But for the most part, he's just really straight. He's just... I don't know. There's a couple of looks that he gives to our main guy sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, knowing. Yes. Sly. Or, like, the way he looks at the daughter. I don't know. He can be pretty creepy sometimes. He's also very attractive. <laughs> He's a handsome man, yes. Anyway, that was 2017's Memoir of a Murderer. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching The Birds. Woohoo! And a sci fi original called Bird Flu Horror. We're not watching Birdemic. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. I've never heard of that. Oh no, it's a it's an intentionally bad it came after Sharknado and The Room, and so it tries to be bad but intentionally so. So it's kind of invalidated because of that. I fucking hate the concept of it. So that's fine. It's bird flu what? Bird flu horror. Can we Sci-fi. get can we burn through that one in like 15 minutes? <laughs> Uh, Remember the other gem that sci-fi gave us? Sci-fi original Red Clover. Yeah, I do. Here comes Bird Flu Horror. With cool dude Billy Zane. Um, All right. Okay. Well, I mean, don't watch that one, but do watch The Birds. (laughs) And we'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, you can get a hold of us, as always, on podcemetery.com, where you can find... All of our episodes, you can leave a comment. You can contact us via email through a link there. Uh, that is podcemetery at gmail.com. And you can access our Twitter, which is at podcemetery. I've been writing more there, trying to, uh, like, in the middle of an edit, if I think of something we didn't talk about or if Kelsey does, I'll usually throw it up on Twitter. So you might want to follow us there, at podcemetery, to catch some additional insights. And occasionally, Kelsey gets trashed and live tweets a horror movie. So... <laughs> Join her for those moments. Uh, Anyways, until next time, this has been Pod Cemetery. My name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. What do we say at the end of the episode, Kelsey? Honey, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner.
this week, 1991's Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> no one's going to get that reference. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. By the way, it's really dark <laughs> in here. I'm not going to be able to read the second one. Deal with it. And that has been our, what's the name of the show again? Supernatural. <laughs> Just real quick, why is it important that they capture Buffalo Bill? Because he's a serial killer? Because he kidnapped a senator's daughter. Oh, well... I mean, they wanted to catch him before that. <laughs> all right, we'll leave all that out. Ejaculation at her. Ejaculate. Whatever. Say it right. You know, I'm, I'm certain that she'd be happy for all the stuff that you've done for her. But now, we need some extra time with her alone. Y'all yeah. need to get out of here. Your penis is showing. Bumblebee tuna. What the fuck uh, is that? <laughs> no, your balls are showing. Bumblebee tuna. That's from Ace Ventura... When nature calls. Bumblebee tuna. Bumblebee tuna. Your balls are showing. Bumblebee tuna. <laughs> I don't get it. I, don't, I, they, I hated the second one. Yeah, it's it's a nuts movie, but he's making fun of the term they say, bubble way of tuna or something like that. It's this chant that they have, and he <laughs> thinks they're saying bumblebee tuna. Anyway, <laughs> way off topic. I do have one other thing. Fucking helicopter, don't you know we're recording in here? And dogs, Jesus. Like, that's why you had that appropriate response. I forget what movie it was when the woman breaks down on the side of the road and the cop is like, hey, do you want me to take you back to the station or whatever? And she's like, no, I'm good. No, that was me. Oh, that was actually you. That happened That was to actually me. you. Yes. Let's start that over again. 